Hi, welcome back everybody to this 2 p.m. Uh, session with the author Leslie Kern, The Making of a Feminist City. It's my uh, pleasure to be introducing her today. I'm Christine Murray. I'm the director of the Festival of Place. Um, and uh, Leslie Kern is an associate professor of geography and environment, women and gender studies, and director of women and gender studies at Mount Allison University. She has a PhD in women's studies from York University. And as an academic, she writes about gender, gentrification, and feminism, and teaches urban, social, and feminist geography. Her research has received a National Housing Studies Achievement Award and a Fulbright Scholar Award, and she currently lives in the territory of McMachie in the town of Sackville, New Brunswick. Uh, with her partner and their two cats. Um, and I, I uh, came across Leslie's uh, work when I read her book, um, Feminist City. And I just wanted to, just as I introduce her, kind of read a passage that really inspired me to approach Leslie and ask her to speak at the Festival of Place, um, which is near the, the back of the, the book. And it says, um, although some urbanists seem nostalgic for a time before smartphones, when street life was more sociable and the chance encounters described by Delaney were more likely, the reality is that this Jane Jacob-esque scene hit a wide range of exclusions across race, class, ability, and sexuality. James Baldwin wrote about the same neighborhoods as Jacobs, where as a queer black man, he was regularly harassed by police and viewed as a dangerous outsider rather than part of the delightful diversity of Jacobs' own version of Greenwich Village. While I think we can learn some valuable lessons from looking at neighborhoods prior to gentrification or urban renewal, we need to set aside the rose-colored glasses and notice who is missing from that picture of idealized city life. So, uh, Leslie, welcome to the Festival of Place, and I'm really looking forward to your talk. Thank you so much, Christine. Thank you to everyone who is here and, and joining us this afternoon. So, as Christine mentioned, I'm coming to you today from Sackville, New Brunswick, Canada, which is the unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq and Maliseet people, and we're governed here by the Treaties of Peace and Friendship. I'm the author of this book, uh, Feminist City, Claiming Space in a Man-Made World, that if you're interested in purchasing, um, you can go to the Verso Books website, and it's actually on sale there as well. It's fascinating to me, this book did come out one year ago, um, almost uh, to, to the week, at least in Canada. And of course, it was written long before there was a pandemic, but in a very interesting way, the pandemic and the kind of lockdown situation that many of us have been in and that I know in the UK you're about to go back into has brought really a whole new lens and a whole new set of people who are interested in some of these questions raised by the idea of the feminist city. And I'll note that the book is very much not a blueprint. It's not a master plan for a new kind of city or a new kind of placemaking. But I do think that it espouses a set of values around which we could shape our cities and our relationships. So that is what I'm going to talk about today at this festival of place to ask us to consider ways of thinking about place that have at their core a vision of justice, equity, sustainability, and care. So what are a few things that the COVID crisis has shown us? Now, for many folks, these are not uh, news. None of these are shocking pieces of information, but uh, for others, this was maybe the first time that some of the extent to which 
certain uh, shakiness in the foundation of society had really been illustrated. So here's just a, a few things that um, our social safety nets are quite full of holes. And I think we've seen that particularly with respect to elder care, but also to gendered care labor in general. And um, care work has something that has remained hidden, in fact, uh, I would argue somewhat deliberately within the private space of the home or within uh, aspects of um, our, our social services that people don't really want to look at, don't really want to pay attention to. And when we have a crisis like COVID, all of a sudden we find that um, our care work network is in crisis and what has been hidden has to come to the forefront. And part of that is that, of course, we heavily rely on unpaid and underpaid work to keep society functioning. And of course, much of this work is done by women, lower income people, racial minorities, recent immigrants, and so on. So it's stigmatized, it's devalued, it's, again, uh, kept out of sight, out of mind. And on a city level, we have started to notice that care work has very much been an afterthought in design. So the struggle to kind of make the necessities of care, whether that's uh, feeding people, getting them to places of health care, uh, looking after children, these things have become much more difficult in this time period. And partly that is because we haven't really created a sort of robust infrastructure for care. It's very much been an afterthought or assumed, again, that, you know, hidden, tucked away in the private space of the home is just all going to naturally happen there. One of the other things that, that I'll mention is that I, I think the crisis has shown that our collective sense of responsibility to each other has uh, been called into question when we see, for example, the refusal of people to wear masks as a, um, you know, a sort of like a call to my personal freedom rather than a, a sense of, oh, this is what I do to be responsible to the people around me who are my fellow citizens, my community, and so on. And, you know, that is one of the most, I think, disheartening things about what this pandemic has shown us. And I guess from a, a city builder's perspective, we might want to be thinking in a, a really large sense, how can we create spaces that help us to promote and encourage that collective sense of responsibility to one another? So what is at stake for our cities at, at this time? And again, this is these problems are not created by COVID, but they've been uh, exacerbated and really brought to the forefront here. So questions of public space, how do we use the environments around us in different ways that allow different groups of people to have access to public space in ways that are both safe, but also really necessary for human social interaction and for the economy, right? We also need to think about the home, right? A recognition that housing and, and, and the home are spaces that are maybe not working as well as some would like to think they are. And in a, a time where we may be seeing a radical shifting of how both paid work and unpaid work are done, it's going to require some rethinking about this space called the home. Of course, our care networks and the infrastructure of care has been shown to be quite sort of shakily supported, both you know, financially, socially, and in terms of our physical environments, the architecture of cities, the transportation networks of cities. So another area where we might need to turn our attention. And of course, we have this 
this beast known as the economy, right? I mean, it's it, it's kind of always like this in discourse, but I think at this particular moment, we are really seeing that this um, the the economy is this kind of reified concept that we just kind of throw out there. What about the economy? What about the economy? And we've sort of forgotten everything that underpins that. And we've maybe forgotten to question what is this economy that we are so um, hung up on saving? And what are we willing to risk or sacrifice in the name of this thing, this economy? Now, of course, obviously, I, I, I'm not saying that the economy doesn't matter. Obviously, it does. But I think as critical thinkers, we want to raise questions about what kind of economy are we looking at in our cities going forward? What do we want to see happen? So part of my task is to uh, think about envisioning a more feminist city. I say more because I don't imagine that there's some kind of perfect end point of a feminist city, but that this is sort of a journey that we could go on. So I mentioned that I, I think of uh, my work around this as trying to put forth a set of values. And so, so here on this slide, talking about a, a, a few of the different principles that I think could guide placemaking, architecture, design, planning, right? So one of which is equality of access to public space. As the quote from my book that Christine so kindly read out um, kind of points to that public space has always been a site of exclusion, historically very explicit exclusions. And even today into the 21st century, a whole variety of other ways of excluding and making people unwelcome are very common in our public spaces. So can we start from a place of imagining or insisting that access to public space needs to be evened out? Reimagining the home and the family is also really critical in my view. We know that the home is not a safe space for many people. We know that this traditional nuclear family structure is under more pressure than ever before. It simply is not uh, particularly effective for many people to live the kind of lives that they want to live. So how can we as people invested in cities think about supporting other notions of what home and the family look like. I'm also interested in thinking about building care into city infrastructure as a forethought. So I mentioned that it's typically an afterthought or it's assumed to be done in spaces that, you know, planners, designers, architects don't really need to care that much about. But what if we put care work at the top of list of priorities? What would that do to the kinds of spaces that we imagine, the kinds of networks that we create and so on? And a big part of that is valuing care work as the foundation of the economy. So if we have this beast called the economy, can we recognize that all of this um, thing that we're trying so desperately to save doesn't exist without a solid foundation of care work, but that foundation existing as it does on the backs of unpaid and underpaid labor is a very shaky foundation. So we need to think about ways of shoring that up, spreading it out and making that work really valued. So what does all this mean for placemaking? Again, if we're thinking about a festival of place and we, uh, the kinds of places that we tend to imagine as these like beautiful, vibrant, um, wonderful spaces, we know that underneath what we are imagining is a set of beliefs, uh, a set of norms, values, 
biases and assumptions that all of us carry with us. It's not that we can completely empty our minds of these things, but there's a process that we have to go through to kind of question those values and norms that kind of lurk under the surface of many of our placemaking ideals. As I say, often these are kind of hidden from ourselves. They come to seem natural. But part of what, you know, I hope to, to do through, you know, my work in the book and presentations like this and the conversations that we have is to get folks uh, questioning, thinking more about where their own biases lie. I, you know, from a feminist perspective, one of the things that feminists like to do is to talk about different sorts of binaries and not just the gender binary, although, of course, that remains sort of a, a huge stumbling block to um, progress in imagining different ways of doing gender. But we like to talk about other sorts of binaries as well. And we like to think about not just inverting them so that the part of the binary that has been kind of um, less acknowledged or less valued is now on top. But we like to think about what does it mean to see these things kind of in opposition to one another? Can, are there different ways of imagining that? So some of the relevant ones here would be things like public and private, right? Why are these still conceived of as these like binary oppositional sorts of spaces? Can we explode that a little bit or play with that in different ways? What about home and work? In fact, we've seen COVID has kind of collapsed this in many ways, not most of which have not been uh, particularly enjoyable for, for people. So if we're going to have this kind of shifting of those boundaries and of that binary, what changes can be um, wrought? Um, some other ones, you know, thinking about the distinction between like family and friends. Why does this remain a sort of tight um, dualistic binary? And again, can we start to collapse that a bit so that the nuclear family doesn't remain so uh, central that we can't imagine other ways of relating to or, or living with other people? So those are just a few that I'll, I'll point out here. And I want to suggest that kind of good placemaking, exciting, new, equitable placemaking helps to, um, if not completely dissolve these binaries, to at least kind of shake them up a little bit to get us to question why we've created and sustained these divisions and what sorts of power relations, importantly, are maintained when we keep distinctions, for example, such as public and private. All right. So... What then do I have to say about kind of a feminist placemaking vision in the post-COVID city if there you know, truly will ever be such a thing? So the first principle that I'll put forward here is this idea of bringing the margin to the center and the idea that, in fact, the minority is perhaps actually the majority. So I think the... Um, <laughs> the, the poster or the ad for this talk mentioned something about moving beyond Jane Jacobs and beyond the sort of modular man. So part of what we're trying to do is think beyond a sort of static and outdated notion of who the majority is, who the city dweller is that we are imagining when we think about creating all sorts of different spaces. And to recognize that actually those groups that we have thought of as somehow in the minority, that when we take them together, they are the majority. So whether that is thinking about disabled people, elderly folks, families with young children, 
women. Um, these groups are not just niches that if we design for them, somehow we are only doing niche design. We're only targeting, um, you know, a special interest group segment of society. No, in fact, this is the majority. And that image of the sort of economic man traveling from the suburbs to work, you know, he's the minority at this point, And we don't need to keep designing with him at the center. So what if we brought these so-called margins to the center and thought about designing in this way, it would, to my mind, um, be a much more inclusive process of design if we start uh, challenging our thinking around who is at the center and who's in the margin. So some of these uh, statements that I'm making here are, are quite obvious ones, and I'm sure they're very obvious to you, but I have found that they kind of need to be reiterated. And I think if we look at the broader public discourse around place and cities, we many of you would agree with me that we do need to make these bold, even seemingly obvious statements. And so the, the second value that I'll put forward here is the idea that the symbolic matters. So whether that's place naming, statues, images, markers, these things are really important when it comes to that principle of equality of access to public space. It's not just about physical access or openness or cost, although those are really critical features. It's also about those symbolic elements that tell people you belong or you don't belong or your history matters, your story matters or yours does not. So some of the images here, I'm sure you recognize um, the toppling of the statue of Colston, Bristol, the uh, statue in the top corner of uh, commemorating comfort women. There's, if you kind of Google like statues of women, you'll find all these stories about how there are actually very few statues around the world of real known women. Of course, there's lots of statues of the female figure, but of actual women, there's very few <laughs> even today. And uh, the final picture is, is uh, from my hometown, Toronto, where many of the street names or street signs are now putting Indigenous names back on the sign as well. So Ishvina here um, would be the Anishinaabe name for that area, or is it an Anishinaabe version of the street name Spadina that we have in that area. So again, it's a symbolic gesture. It's not the same thing as full decolonization. But it's a recognition that this is a settler colonial city and the ongoing relationships with Indigenous people have to be acknowledged and brought to the forefront and not continually hidden and marginalized. Home, inside out. I could talk about the home <laughs> all day long and uh, rant about the ways in which the home as we know it has largely failed us in this time of crisis, but has probably been failing many of us for a long time. And there's many different angles from which we could approach that, but I'll just focus here on the uh, world of care work and how, again, the private home has remained this space where we can hide and ignore and continue to sort of devalue and naturalize and feminize care work and not raise these critical questions about how we can do care work in a more public way. So how can we think about designing spaces where we kind of turn that inside out, where we take care work out of the hidden shadows of the family home and make as much of it as possible public, right? Or at least redistributed or brought into public spaces in ways that are not 
seen as like these radical interventions to have like a, you know, a pizza oven in a park. Uh, why are not all of our parks set up to allow for food provision? And what a difference that would make in a moment of crisis, either an economic crisis, a, a health crisis, a natural disaster, right? So if we could think about designing spaces with this in mind, I think we would have a much more robust care network for when crises do arise. Start from the body, right? People have bodies, such an obvious statement, but I find that I say it again and again, and there's a sort of, oh yeah, people have bodies. People have different bodies with different sorts of needs, but so much urban design has kind of, again, wanted to ignore the messy nature of the body, the gendered nature of the body, the different abilities of different bodies, and to, again, kind of assume this sort of smooth movement to the city of an able-bodied man. So the question here is, if we start from the body, if we think people have universal needs for food, shelter, shade, rest, to use the bathroom, to be cared for, for water. And if those were the things that we kind of put at the forefront of the kinds of places that we want to create, to, to recognize that embodied nature of city living, we would, again, increase the quality of access because there's many people who do not access public space in part because they don't know that they'll have a place to rest or a place to go to the bathroom or a place to take care of their children or the you know elderly or disabled person that they're accompanying to public space, right? So not starting from the body is a way of explicitly and implicitly excluding a whole bunch of other groups. So starting from the body is also to me an inclusion principle. So care at the center of design, this is, uh, you know, connected to my comments about home, but believing that care work and relationship building has to be built in to the city at the start. So not something that we kind of try to jerry-rig after the fact or to build in. So you can see from one image here, you know, a man changing a baby diaper on the sidewalk, probably because if there's a men's washroom nearby, it doesn't have a change table or facilities for him to look after um, his children or the children that he is taking care of. We've seen that in the pandemic, simply getting food to people has been um, a major hurdle. And going forward, again, when we think about our public spaces, when we think about the networks, the transportation facilities or, or connectivity that we want to build, can we imagine care at the center of that and not something that people just have to work around uh, in order to, you know, just like survive and to look after one another. And to me, this also goes to my point about creating spaces that encourage that collective sense of responsibility to one another, rather than this kind of everybody for themselves, you just have to make do, you just have to figure out a way to make it work instead of um, a collective way of doing that. So the last principle that I'll put forward here, of course, very much inspired by the work of Black Lives Matter to remind us that if we're concerned about safety in public space, then we need to be really critical and intersectional about what safety means. So can we imagine spaces where safety is in the hands of the community and we are not primarily relying on policing or private security to do the work of creating 
safety. So here we can again, you know, we can look back to Jean Jacobs, who very much inspired this idea of eyes on the street, but she wasn't talking about CCTV or the police or private security guards. She was talking about neighbors. But again, she wasn't talking about them like spying on one another, putting up you know, doorbell cameras or reporting them on apps like Nextdoor for, I don't know, loitering or playing loud music. She was talking about seeing them, knowing them, caring for them, and in that way, uh, raising, you know, a, that sense of collective responsibility. But we know far too often that this notion of eyes on the street has been kind of corrupted and perverted and then weaponized against poor communities, migrant communities, Black people, homeless people, queer folks in ways that have you know, led to their um, exclusion and to great levels of violence against them. So it's an important thing to keep in mind that when we are imagining this feminist post-COVID city, it's not one with a cop on every corner. So I'm coming up to my conclusions now. So if people have questions that they want to start putting in the Q&A box, Christina is going to take a look at those and then we can have some, some discussion in a few moments here. So I'm always reminded about uh, Henri Lefebvre saying that the city is both the site and the stakes of struggle. So the city is often the place where we see great social change, social movements happening, but we are also fighting for the city in many ways. So it's the site and the stakes of struggle. But some struggles have been kept hidden, particularly ones about the gender nature of, of cure work and the oppression of the sort of double and, and triple day those things have not been kind of brought to the forefront of struggles, at least not for a long time. And I, I think that the pandemic moment is really perhaps the first time in the 21st century that we are reckoning on a large scale in a very public way with questions about housework, right? There were historically movements like wages for housework and having unpaid work counted in the census or in, in national accounting in some way. But, you know, some of those struggles have kind of fallen by the wayside. But I think we're reviving this um, attention to it now in ways that have, uh, when I'm feeling optimistic, I think could lead us to some very exciting changes. So, then the kind of, you know, takeaway is, can we imagine a city where what has been hidden and excluded for so long is finally made public, is made um, beautiful, is made accepted, is made normal? Can we imagine, you know, turning our assumptions, our binaries inside out, upside down, uh, or at least questioning, questioning them? And we may not reach some kind of ultimate feminist or other kind of utopia, but there is great value in trying and in, in having the struggle in going through the process. And I think that we can all be a part of that. So I'll conclude my remarks there and look forward to uh, taking any and all questions from people. Thank you so much, Leslie. If you want to um, unshare your screen, we can uh, take back over the the stage. And um, I, I see a question has already uh, come in. Oh, actually, they're flying in at the moment. So I'm going to play catch up. I'm going to, as I come to grips with um, what's being asked of you, I, want, I was wondering whether you could explain for the audience who may uh, not be familiar with the statement at the beginning about unceded land, just what that is and, and why people do say that when they're speaking um, from unceded land. 
Okay. I've just switched to low definition because I think my Wi-Fi was a little unstable. But if I heard your question, Christine, you were asking about the concept of unceded land. So unceded, like un like U-N-C-E-D-E-D, just to be <laughs> perfectly clear what the word that I'm saying there. So it's a recognition that even during the colonization process that Indigenous people in signing treaties, they were not signing away their rights to be on the land, to live on the land, to be a part of this nation that we currently call Canada. So the there's a common you know, misperception that treaties just granted all power to the colonizers rather than treaties being a, uh, a set of guidelines for a relationship, an ongoing relationship, not one that kind of ended in the so-called colonial period, but one that continues today. So for me, living in this particular territory that is known as uh, Mi'kma'ki, it's a recognition that the uh, Mi'kmaq and Malsi people uh, expect us to continue living under the guidelines, at least the general principles of treaties and peace and friendship, rather than for those of us who are descendants of settlers or more recent immigrants to this land to have an assumption that we now own and control this land. Thank you. That was a, a brilliant ex- um, explanation. And I'm, I, I'm now going to, to move to, um, to ask some of these questions here. So how, what are good examples? There's a couple of questions here looking for good examples of cities or regions or places um, that, that exhibit some principles of the feminist city. There's a, a comment here about struggling to, 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 uh, with the idea of what a feminist city would look and feel like and whether there are examples of places or programs that illustrate it. Mm-hmm. So there's a variety of different ways of answering that question. And I sometimes struggle with it because I don't think that there is necessarily one shining example out there, or at least nobody has brought it to my attention yet. But there are places where we might notice that some of these principles do seem to be in action. So whether those are cities that have gender mainstreaming uh, built into their planning process, so that's the idea that all city planning and budgetary and policy decisions have to kind of be run through like a gender lens before you can make them. So you have to ask a question about how will this new development, this school, this park, this freeway, this subway line, how is this going to impact gender equity? And cities that have made some successful strides with this include Vienna, uh, where they created, you know, a, a whole neighborhood based on people's responses to questions about this, you know, describing what would make their everyday lives better. And so some of the things that resulted were um, an integration of spaces of care, uh, but public spaces of care with residential spaces that were also close to workspaces that had transportation networks that were not solely focused on a kind of nine to five commuter schedule, but that allowed for different ways of getting around the city and to different zones in the city. And in the new development, they also named all of the streets after women <laughs> in, instead of you know the, the usual, which is to not name, name streets after women. Um, the mayor of Paris has recently been talking about the idea of the 15-minute city. And although she, I, I don't think, has sort of um, explicitly said this is a feminist vision, it does align with a lot of feminist writing about tr- 
problems with the city, which is that the kind of zoning, uh, the separation of residential work, play, consumption, and so on has really made uh, caretaking, which again, mostly falls to women, very difficult, very inconvenient. So the idea of the 15-minute city is that all of these basic needs are within a kind of 15-minute, like, you know, walk, bike, or public transportation ride. Um, Another kind of example of these uh, principles would be, um, you know, this places where there is a kind of alignment, not just of sort of design, but of a higher level, both city and national policies that really show the value or that care work is valued. So places, for example, that have extensive both maternity and paternity leave that people actually use and that men actually use, um, that kind of trickles down then into noticing aspects of like the city infrastructure that support that. So when I think about a city like Copenhagen, where you can see uh, families riding their bikes with their children, with their shopping, um, you know, doing... Uh, using the city's infrastructure both to do their paid work and their unpaid work. There's not a strict gender division of how that's happening. And it's just assumed that that is normal. Whereas in many North American cities, that would be much more the exception than the rule. And I think that that is also reflected in the ways in which, um, especially in the U.S., you know, there basically is no maternity, no guaranteed maternity or paternity leave. And, you know, you, you sort of see that that is then you don't have that reflected in the city infrastructure as well. So one question is about is acknowledging, there's a couple of questions, acknowledging peeing, toilets. I mean, I'm going to add to that. It's not in here, but menstruation, which, as you said, is completely invisible and certainly not celebrated in most uh, toilets uh, that I visit. Um, this is such a big deal. How do we get it on the agenda and serious policy? Uh, you know, how do we get it into policy and, and urban design? Hmm. Well, this is an, a moment where um, the pandemic might offer a kind of opportunity because if there is a sense that people in order for um, uh, a level of, of safety in terms of the virus, that we want to use outdoor spaces more so than indoor spaces so that we can either gather and socialize or again, like keep this economy such as it is functioning, there has to be a recognition that if you want people to use outdoor spaces, you have to provide adequate facilities. And that includes bathroom facilities. And I know, again, in my hometown of, of Toronto, that um, in the in the summertime, people going out in droves to use parks and ended up, you know, peeing and defecating like in alleyways beside people's houses, because of course there's, you know, residential neighborhoods around and it became kind of a public nuisance rather than something that people were doing, you know, to benefit their, their health. So this is perhaps a moment where we can push for that. Although, you know, the signs are discouraging again, noticing from, from Toronto, because of course it gets very cold there in the winter that most public bathrooms that like the parks department provides are closed as of the end of October because they're not heated spaces. So there's just all these things that we've, you know, these assumptions about how we live and how people use space that we really have to turn on their head. I think also the movement for um, uh, non-binary gendered washroom and changing space options is really pushing this conversation forward as well. And, um, you know, disability 
activism has always been kind of at the forefront of pushing this as well. And we know that, you know, in most places, there's legislation where you have to have accessible toilets. I know these are not always actually as accessible as they (laughs) should be. But it's an example of where, you know, a strident activism really did lead to physical changes in the space. There are two questions here about transport and infrastructure. So about women um, often taking more frequent but shorter journeys, uh, trip trip chaining, I think some people call it, and men taking fewer. Is that changing? And what's the impact on infrastructure in a second that talks about intersectional feminisms of free, accessible, extensive public transport with the issue? How do we reconcile that with the new issue of social distancing and the rise of private car use? Yeah, this is definitely a conundrum. I mean, I I am 100% in agreement with the idea of free or very affordable public transportation. I think children should not pay to use public transportation. That would be at least one uh, first step. And of course, having systems that are designed where people can get on and off without a financial penalty to doing that. Um, this is such a kind of an obvious thing. And yet so many cities have been extremely reluctant to allow this to happen unless you've already paid for, you know, very expensive, like monthly or yearly pass. Um, so those things are, are gendered issues. I mean, overall, women have less access to private cars than men do. Women are still a majority of public transportation users in most places in the world. And yes, they don't their journeys tend to be less linear and less concentrated at the peak service times of nine to five work. Uh, they make multiple stops and, and journeys throughout the day. And if you are, if you live in the suburbs or in rural areas, there tends to be, uh, you know, an even greater lack of transportation, especially think routes that run outside of those peak hours. So those our gender concerns. And honestly, I mean, feminists have been writing about that since at least the 70s, if not before, like, in terms of what I can see as public writing about that. So this is at least 50 years of talking about this. And it's kind of exhausting. I mean, we're still only just now in the 21st century getting properly accessible, like physically accessible buses, streetcars, subway cars that make everybody's life easier. Again, speaking of minority versus majority, like probably the majority of people would prefer to have a physically accessible um, space of transportation networks to get into. So this question of what are we going to do about this with respect to COVID, I mean, to me, this comes, and this is an intersectional question that comes to an equity issue, because I think we've seen that in many cases, the people who are forced to take public transit are those essential workers uh, working in often these very devalued minimum wage, hourly wage type jobs who don't have a choice to work from home, who don't have a choice to carpool or to have access to um, a private car, but who have essentially been forced into taking like the least reliable public transportation, like buses, for example, in North American cities, uh, the least timely public transportation, the most crowded forms of public transportation where you can't distance. So it's just, again, a reminder that when we think about our transportation networks, if we are not imagining like the most... Uh, having the most equitable, the best service going to the people who need it most, then we're really kind of failing in that way. 
I realize that is not providing a solution to that problem, <laughs> that more set of observations. Uh, I think they're very welcome observations. And I think your frustration is very, very welcome as well. I think there is a, a collective sense of frustration. How do we move from talking about this stuff for 50 years uh, to actually doing something about it? And, and do you have any thoughts about effective lobbying, effective change? Hmm. Well, I mean, in the area of transportation, there have been, um, you know, I'm thinking of uh, like in Los Angeles, there was the bus riders union that formed. And I think it still exists in some way, but they would, when there were um, overcrowded bus routes, they would encourage people to like, if you couldn't find a place to sit on the bus, or if you had 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 to wait for a second bus to come along that you didn't pay your fare, right? That it was um, this kind of idea of like, you know, reclaiming the, the space on the buses to try to pressure the transit system to provide adequate service. Again, it's always to outlying like poor Black and Latinx communities who are the most affected by this. But, you know, children can't get to school, right? If they can't get on uh, the bus or the bus is overcrowded or the bus takes half an hour to come and then four come at once. Like we've all been there, but for some people, this is like every day that they go through this struggle. So engaging in this kind of like an idea that transit riders could be like a collectivity themselves, that if they as a group pressured the system to provide for their needs, that there might be some response to it. So I think in some ways the bus riders union in LA did have some success in publicizing, you know, the needs of these different communities and arguing against from a civil rights perspective, actually using civil rights legislation to say that like providing luxury commuter train service to the white suburbs and um, poor crappy bus service to black and Latinx communities was a civil rights violation. So there might be ways to use those kinds of um, rules and laws to advance these claims. And of course, that goes right back to Rosa Parks and and the boycott there, yeah. which is kind of exactly. the origin. Um, so uh, I, I'm going to take a raised hand. We have a raised hand, which is uh, when they can uh, I can hand the mic. So we try to keep these 60 seconds to two minutes. So Pam, I'm going to hand you the mic now. Oh, go ahead. You're ready. <laughs> Um, thank you very much. That was really, really interesting. And I love that you suggest bringing caring out into the public arena, because I think one of the things we've noticed in the pandemic is more kindness and more caring, but also more frustration and hostility. Uh, you know, I get cross when a jogger or a cyclist comes too close. Um, there are new findings in neuroscience, which... Um, uh, for example, our catapults have been involved in, which help us to recognize the causes of hostile feelings and design spaces to encourage empathy for each other. And I wonder if that was anything that you had thoughts on. A particular example at the Design Council was when we designed out aggression in accident and emergency wards, simply recognizing the needs of the patients rather than what the doctors thought they needed. Thank you. That's such a great question. I have been thinking about it both on kind of like a personal level and from, you know, my, my sort of, I guess, academic or, or theory mind. And, and I think a lot of the hostility is, of course, fear based, right? And even when you kind of have that, that reaction of like, 
oh, I see people gathering and they shouldn't be. And maybe I should call the sort of snitch line on my neighbors for having a non-socially distanced gathering. Like there's a fear there. There's a fear that's propelling that. And it's not an illegitimate fear. I mean, the virus is a very real thing to be afraid of. But I think from a city perspective, we could think about the way in which uh, so much of the way that our cities have been run over the past several decades has been about cultivating fear of one another, right? Where, where we see increased policing or over-policing of spaces where we have CCTV up everywhere that is encourages basically a, like the, the naturalization that everybody should be spying on one another all the time, uh, where we have gated communities or spaces that are kind of very uh, fortress-like, where we have anti-homeless spikes and architecture uh, where we, you know, make it illegal for people to be sleeping outdoors, right? And I think about right now, you know, these sort of images that I'm seeing of people uh, juxtaposing these, like, you know, these clear, you know, bubble dining tents for middle-class people to go out and have a, a, you know, a socially distanced meal on a patio, but then a tent where somebody is living because they literally don't have a home and shelters have not been made pandemic safe that's illegal, but it's okay for me as like a white middle class person to sit in a plastic bubble on the sidewalk and eat my risotto or whatever. So, um, so yes, there are, I, to come back to the question, I think design plays a really important role in this because we can either cultivate a sense of fear and hostility and wariness of one another, or we can cultivate a sense of collective care and the solutions are not always obvious, but I think the one, you know, the A&E one thinking about starting from the perspective of the patient in this case, we could start from the perspective of who are the most vulnerable, right? Both to the pandemic, to poverty, to violence, start from their perspective. What do they need to be as safe as possible? And that is going to, you know, kind of trickle up in terms of, of safety for everybody else. I really like these tips. Um, I say they're brilliant, starting from the body, starting from the most vulnerable, you know, these kind of these personas, these almost, you know, putting on putting on different hats and shoes. Um, there is a question here about how, from Saskia Little. How do you suggest a community facilitate unbiased collective responsibility? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's so hard in the face of, you know, gentrification and, you know, ongoing segregation, ongoing settler colonialism, like these to me are um, forces that are actively impeding that vision. So part of it is taking on that, that bigger project of decolonization of anti-racist work of anti-poverty work because again we kind of have to start from a foundation of of justice and equity and and um is it cornell west who says justice is what love looks like in public right so that idea that uh, it's not just enough to like love our neighbors but that we have to think about justice and, you know, economic justice, racial justice, as the gender justice, as like the, the starting point, the foundation for that. So one of the things that is encouraging, and I think Pam mentioned this in her comment, we have seen kindness, right? We have seen mutual aid um, as a, a kind of collective efforts to feed one another, to look after the elderly folks in our communities, to, to check on each other as neighbors, to care for each other. We have seen a lot of this. So it shows me that it is possible 
incorporated and people within that are having these conversations about like who is in need and who have we ignored as a community. So I think there is potential there. And we have seen some people like really acting on that during this time. I want to return to some of your comments about the home. I think they're really interesting because we do still envision the home as a private space and that being a safe space. And there's a sense that, um, uh, that any surveillance is about being able to see out to the outside, but it's not about transparency and safety of the people inside. It's, and that idea of not only that care is invisible, but also that the home uh, needs to be challenged as a safe environment because for many people, it's, it is not a safe space, especially the vulnerable. But I wondered if you could, if you could maybe take us to a place, what does a safe, um, home, uh, look or feel like you know we've got people here who who design housing um, and who are who are developing housing you know what what would a safe home look like and I'm going to tie that question to another question that's here that's about so much of what you talk about making the care visible in a 15 you know you mentioned the 15 minute city is that a village uh, you know can someplace like like London like Toronto you know which is not as big as London but still a big city um, can they ever become enclosed does size does size actually matter? So, so both uh, picking up on your notions of the home and safety. What does a safe home look like? And uh, is it a village? Mm-hmm. I think the idea of a safe home to me has to be broadened out to the idea of like a, a safe housing system, which would be a housing system that is based on a like diversity of both forms, families, relationships, and needs. So it's not that I imagine that we would all give up our private family home and move into a commune or move into a retirement type community, but for everybody, um, yes, it's not going to suit everybody. And I think especially, you know, under capitalism, the home is like a site of wealth accumulation. It's a site of, um, uh, status. Like it's, it's bound up with a lot of other things, but this question of safety. So the safety from like domestic violence, um, you know, control, surveillance, child abuse, the only way that we can kind of, one of the only ways that we can kind of create safety in that sense is to make sure that there are alternatives, right? Because this is an ongoing problem is that people can't leave those situations because there's no affordable place to go, uh, because, you know, shelter systems are like overburdened because once you get out of your few weeks in a, you know, an emergency shelter, there's no second stage housing or transitional housing to go to, um, you know, the court systems are kind of a total mess when it comes to domestic violence, both in terms of preventing it, there's nothing to prevent it, and there's nothing to kind of like stop it from continuing in many ways. So to me, it's thinking about how can we imagine systems where people feel like there is an alternative to the heterosexual nuclear family if you want that, right? If you want to live with friends, if you want to live in a multi-generational family, if you want to live in a communal living society, like that these are available options. They are not these weird outliers that we have to kind of struggle against zoning and the available forms of housing that are there and the legal restrictions on who can own property together, like that these things are more easily facilitated. So to me, it's about broadening that that out and yet not imagining home 
as it's just a collection of little boxes, but actually that it's an interconnected system. It's kind of a web um, that, that um, you know, has many layers that can kind of catch people that might be kind of falling through or, or who are not, um, yeah, that are facing problems at, at one, one or more of those levels in the system. Um, the second, remind me of the second part of the question, Christine. Oh, I have to remind myself when you call me out. Um, I think the second part of the question was, so the safe home, and then we talked about, yeah, well, can it be a village? Can a big city ever be, ever fulfill? Um, can it be a feminist city or is what you're describing um, only work on a small yeah. scale? <laughs> That's a great question. And, and people have asked similar things, like are we thinking about just, we just all move back into small communities? I mean, I think, Right now, I live in a small community. I'm kind of looking out my window because I, I live right now in a town of 5,000 people, right? Very, very small community, smallest place I've ever lived. And there are reasons why people leave places like this, right? There are reasons why not everyone wants to live in this. There are things that cities bring that actually these small communities are not as good at providing. There's no public transportation here. There's like literally not barely even a bus that can take you from one town to the next, let alone public transportation within the town itself, right? There's a lack of food security. There's um, isolation. There's uh, there's no anonymity. There's no independence for many people. So there's still reasons why people are drawn to cities. So I don't think the solution is kind of, you know, scattering us into these small communities, but it might be, again, and we have to kind of combat forces like gentrification that I think are making it quite difficult for communities to be diverse, to look after one another, to understand the, the different needs of, of the different groups of people. So the idea to me of the 15 minute city might not be that we're sort of in these encapsulated little neighborhood bubbles, but that there's a lot of overlap of these bubbles, right? And that there's a lot of um, movement in between your sort of 15 minute space, not the idea that these are fully self-sufficient, but that there are, um, that they're still interconnected with one another because cities do offer that scaling up of all sorts of things that you simply would struggle to provide in a, in a small town format. Would you argue that the imperfection of cities, and we know they're imperfect, is still more feminist than the suburbs? <laughs> uh, yes, I would. I would think so. I mean, I, I, I don't like to um, only engage in sort of suburb bashing <laughs> because I think we have to like uh, try to again be creative about how to you know, work with the infrastructure that we have. But yes, I mean, cities do still do for all of their faults, for all of the gentrification that that's happening for all of the exclusions, they do still provide more of these kind of um, different diversity of, of opportunities, of ways of living, of ways of being that more homogenous suburban small town environments simply don't support very well. 
So uh, we just have three minutes left. So I'm going to try to um, kind of wrap up what I can. There's a, a lot of love for what you've said. I think that's fair to say. Um, I think <laughs> there it comes in, the, in emoji form. Um, I think this uh, this idea, maybe just to finish with this idea you you talked about, which has come up in the questions about bringing care in to the public arena. Um, so is there kind of, I don't know, I suppose, maybe, maybe on that theme, um, on that theme of bringing care into the public arena, mm-hmm. uh, I guess in this time of COVID and of pandemic where we feel like we are distant from each other, uh, what is, what are you seeing that's working? What are you seeing that COVID is, is making, is, how is the city, is the city realizing any uh, positive promise through COVID? Yeah, I, I think so. And I do feel somewhat hopeful that there is um, an increased recognition of the value of care work, both the paid and unpaid care work that we can, this is a moment where we can push for things like universal basic income, where we can push for increases to minimum wage, where we can push for the revaluing and the destigmatizing of the work of like cleaning up after people or providing food to people and realize like, oh, you know, actually, this is like literally the stuff that keeps us alive and keeps this economy uh, that we care so much about going. So there's potential to kind of uh, have a bit of a paradigm shift around, you know, what we understand as care work. I think there's a potential. I don't think it's being realized yet for um, a redistribution of care work within the home or a broader recognition that putting um, every uh, every aspect of care work onto the sort of the shoulders of the family home and women in that family home is a recipe for disaster and that we can renew calls for things like uh, widely accessible nationally funded child care systems for better parental leave options uh, for all of those kinds of policy supports that would enable us to kind of redistribute care in a way that's much more equitable and that, you know, recognizes and values that work. So that just leaves me to thank you so much for being here. Can we have some emoji applause, please, for Leslie Kern? Uh, the book is Feminist City, um, and it's great. It's uh, it's a it's a really actually it's it's a really um, it's a really lovely read. It will edify a lot of the things that you uh, you believe, but it will also introduce you uh, to some new ways of thinking and looking at the problems that we are facing um, to make more equitable uh, and you know step into other shoes while you're designing. I'm going to start from the body, um, you know, make care visible. I think a lot of these things I'm going to hold on to from this talk. I hope you guys really enjoyed it. Uh, And thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Christina. Thank you everyone for your questions and for your emoji love. (laughs) It's wonderful to be here.